Good to see everybody. Praise God. Good to see you. If you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John chapter 11. All right, John chapter 11, as we continue our study through the book of John. And I got to say, chapter 11 is an important and interesting chapter for a number of reasons. It's important because it contains the last of seven miracles performed by Jesus that John chose to record in his gospel for a very specific reason. Remember he said at the end of his gospel that many other miracles Jesus did in the presence of his disciples. But I have chosen these that you might believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now, guys, this last miracle that John records, interestingly, that the other gospel writers didn't record in their, in their gospels, this last miracle John records was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this was by far, in my mind at least, the most sensational and spectacular of all the miracles Jesus did, even though Lazarus wasn't the only one that Jesus raised from the dead. Mark and Luke record that Jesus raised two others. One was Jairus' daughter, and the other was the widow of Nain's son. Nain was a village, okay? A woman lived there. It was a widow. Her son died, and Jesus raised him from the dead. Now, there might have been others. Um, you know, there might have been others that Jesus raised from the dead that none of the gospel writers recorded, but um, we know there were three in the gospels. Now, I think we'd all agree that whenever a person is raised from the dead, uh, it's a spectacular miracle, okay? However, what separates the resurrections of those other two from Lazarus's resurrection was that the other two were raised shortly after death, whereas Lazarus had been dead and entombed for four days before Jesus raised him from the dead. And that meant, of course, that decay and decomposition had already begun to take place, which in my mind makes his resurrection not only unique, but even more spectacular than the others that were brought back to life. John 11 is also important because along with chapter 12, it forms the transition, the bridge, if you will, between the close of Jesus' public ministry in chapter 10, and then the final events surrounding his crucifixion and resurrection as recorded in chapters 13 through 21. But chapter 11 is also a very important and interesting chapter and that it gives us a basis for understanding why God allows suffering in our lives. In that regard, this chapter presents a truth, a truth about God that many can't deal with and even refuse to acknowledge is real. And that is that God will allow sickness and suffering for his glory. Before we get into that, or before we get into this chapter, let me stop and say that one of the questions we Christians often get from skeptics is, if there is a God, then why does he allow suffering? I mean, why is there famine, disease, evil, and injustice in the world if God is real and he is a good and loving God? Now, 
skeptics and critics of Christianity have pondered that idea, that question for centuries. And it has caused skeptics to conclude one of three things. First of all, that God doesn't exist. Secondly, he does exist but doesn't really care about people. That was the Greek concept of the gods, that they were apatheia, that were apathetic. They didn't care about people. And that thirdly, God does exist, he does care, but he's just not powerful enough to uh, stop bad things from happening to good people. The title of Rabbi Harold Kushner's book that was a huge success because that title, when bad things happen to good people, really resonated with people, and I think his book uh, several years ago shot up to the top of the, of the um, New York Times bestseller list, was up there for over a year, maybe longer. There's another view, though, another view that's brought out in John 11, that God does exist, he does care, he is powerful enough to do something about evil and injustice and so on, and chapter 11 gives us the fourth view as to why he allows suffering and all to go on. We'll cover that in detail next week, although we'll kind of work our way up to it today. So the first point in my outline of chapter 11 is simply the critical friend. The critical, I don't mean critical hearted friend. I mean the friend who is in a critical condition, very sick. Verse one, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, there were two Bethanies, so John wants to clarify which one he's talking about by telling us it was the Bethany where Lazarus and his two sisters lived, Mary and Martha, and then he adds, you know, the Mary that anointed the Lord's feet with fragrant oil and wiped them with her hair. That Mary. Well, everybody knew who that Mary was. She was famous for her act of kindness and love toward her Lord. Everyone around, in and around Jerusalem uh, in the first century basically knew who that Mary was. And John, writing 60 years after the fact, 60 years after Mary had anointed Jesus' feet for burial and crucifixion, um, he feels all he needs to do is mention Mary uh, and what Mary he's talking about who anointed Jesus. Everybody would know exactly uh, who that Mary was and what Bethany he was talking about. That Bethany, the one that John has in mind, was located on the southeastern slope of the Mount of Olives. All right, And it was about a mile and three quarters from Jerusalem. And because it was in close proximity to Jerusalem, and because of the close relationship that Jesus had with this family of siblings, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, the Lord would frequently go to their house uh, to get away from the uh, rigors and pressures of public life or even to spend the night after a long day of ministry in Jerusalem. Now, guys, you have to know that background going forward because it's very important. If you didn't know this background and how close Jesus was to this family, um, you might not understand what's coming in the story. All right? You might not get it. You might think that Jesus didn't care about these people, and that would be absolutely incorrect. As chapter 11 opens up, Jesus was at Bethabara. We know that from chapter 10, verse 40. Cross-reference that with chapter 1, verse 28. They were in Bethabara, 
uh, his disciples were baptizing some new converts in the Jordan there. And uh, Bethabara was about 20 miles from Bethany, which meant it was a two-day journey by foot. And so we again read verse 2. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. We'll study that beautiful act when we get to chapter 12. It was that Mary whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. In the Greek, the word translated sick means deathly sick. The Greek word for love is phileo, and it means friendship or brotherly love. The word Philadelphia, right? City of Philadelphia comes from two Greek words, phileo and adelphos. Literally means the city of brotherly love. Now, guys, the sisters worded the message that was purpose. Excuse me. The sisters worded the message this way purposely to capitalize on the close friendship they had with Jesus, a friendship love they now sought to draw upon in the hopes that it would give them, you know, preferential treatment. You know, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? And uh, uh, they had worded it this way purposely to get maybe some preferential treatment from Jesus, you know, move them up to the front of the queue, to the head of the line, and the busy teach, uh, healing ministry of Jesus. There was always people lined up for Jesus to heal them. And they knew that. They had traveled with Jesus uh, and saw him minister many times. And so they were hoping that by wording this message this way, uh, it would have moved them right to the front of the line, uh, and Jesus would have come to them more quickly than maybe if a stranger had asked uh, him to come and heal their loved one, okay? But not only that, these sisters were aware of how Jesus, God, they knew he was God. These sisters were aware of how Jesus responded to requests. This was a prayer request in a, in a sense, all right? Uh, they knew how he responded to requests to heal people or help them in some way. How did they know him so well? Because they spent many hours with him. It comes through in this story that Jesus, that from spending all those hours with Jesus, no doubt, many of them in sweet fellowship with him at their home, he was a common guest there, they got to know him. They spent time with him. They talked with him. They watched him minister. They saw his heart. They got to know him. Sadly, a lot of Christians don't know the Lord. I'm not saying they're not saved. They don't really know him. Mary and Martha knew him. And uh, they learned a lesson about him that they now apply to their request. They didn't say, Lord, your friend Lazarus, who loves you, is sick. No, instead they said, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, before we look at that approach to our prayer request of the Lord, I'd like to draw your attention to something else quickly. It's interesting that the message that the girls sent to Jesus didn't contain any instructions or commands. You can check that out, okay? There wasn't any detailed account of the situation. There really, in fact, there really wasn't a request of any kind made of the Lord at all. It was implied in the message. They knew Jesus well enough and how his love for them was strong enough 
that all they had to do was make him aware of the need, and he would respond without them having to say another word. It's like a mother who's got a small child in school, and suddenly a teacher calls on the phone and says, your child was hurt. How many mothers in the old days when there was no cell phones would have dropped the phone, run out the door, rushed to the school to help their child? It's just instinctive, right? The women knew that all they had to do was say Lazarus was sick, and Jesus would rush to Bethany to help his friend. Nothing more needed to be said. It, it, it begs the question, how well do you know the character of your Lord and the depth of his love for you? And how does that affect the way you pray when you need something from him? You know, a lot of people, when they pray, beg God. They beg. Why do they beg God? Well, because they don't really think he likes them too much. Well, why don't they, they're Christians, why, why, why don't they think he likes them very much? Well, I'm always blowing it. You know, I don't read my Bible the way I should. I don't go to church every Sunday. I haven't uh, had victory over the cigarettes or the alcohol or the pornography yet. So God's always mad at me, they think. And when they really do need his help, they feel because he's kind of mad at them because they're not measuring up. They, they feel they need to beg God to help them. All their sweet talk, God. You ever run into a person like that? They sweet talk God because their concept of God is one where he really doesn't care. You know? I mean, he doesn't want to be bothered. And so I got to, you know, kind of sweet talk him to get what I want. Lord, you're the best. Oh, Lord, you're just the greatest. I mean, you know, I, I went by your house the other day. It's awesome, you know. I mean, they just feel they got to kind of just sweet talk the Lord. Uh, he really doesn't care about what they're going through, and so they need to kind of butter him up uh, when they pray that uh, he does for them and gives to them what they need. Some try to bribe God in their prayers. Um, they try to bribe him with what they'll give him or do for him if he uh, does this for them. Now, Lord, if you come through, if you do this for me, I'm going to be in church every week. I promise. I'm going to start giving to the, your work every week, Lord. Uh, some, when they pray, just take the dominant position, and they command God. Well, not really maybe God, although that's what they're implying, uh, they just command the sickness. They need uh, someone to be healed. They love, and I command you in Jesus' name. Sickness be gone. Because that's how they were taught in their Word of Faith church. Others get into tedious details when they pray. I don't know if you've ever been in a prayer meeting with somebody like this. It is painful. It is just painful. I mean, they believe that when they pray, that um, they, they pray as if God doesn't know what's going on in a given situation and needs them to explain it to, to him. Even though Jesus said, you don't have to explain to God. He knows what you need. Even before you ask, just get to it. <laughs> All right? Sometimes that's what I want to say to people. I go, on and on. Just get to it. He knows what you need. Now, there are those that instruct God on how to handle a problem 
uh, when they pray. Instead of praying direct prayers, they pray directional prayers, where they're basically directing God how to handle the situation. Lord, if you just will follow these steps, I've got it all mapped out. If you will just follow, what I, Lord, listen to me. I've been thinking a lot about this. If you'll just follow my instructions here, everything is going to get worked out. Now, folks, we have a little fun with that. I think we've all fallen into that, whether we know it or not, from time to time. You show me people that pray like this, and I will show you people that don't spend a lot of time with God. Because they don't know. They don't know. Mary and Martha knew it because they spent time with him, right? And they understood the love of Jesus towards them and that they only needed to bring the request to him and that he would do the rest. But getting back to the way Lazarus' sisters worded their request for Jesus to come and heal their brother, they said, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Now, guys, I believe in embedded in that very short, succinct statement is a very important truth, one that many would miss because they would just read over it. But I believe it's the foundation of all the requests we make of God in prayer. Let me just say this. God help us. If his power was activated in our lives because of our love for him, God help us. My love can be self-centered. I always think it's God-centered, but then again, I always think I'm perfect. Everybody else has got a problem, but I'm, I'm the example of Christian. You know, you open the, uh, the dictionary of Christian and my picture's there. We, you know, we, we, we tend to think, of that, think that way of ourselves, don't we? We don't realize often the heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. And, uh, you know, while I'm patting myself on the back and throwing roses at myself, God's going, oh. yeah, he's just like... How clueless. I love him, but he's really clueless. <laughs> but because, because I have got a lot of self-love, I mean, we all do. We, the flesh is still with us, right? I'm not saying we always walk in this selfishness, but it's there. And sometimes it will rear its ugly head, even unbeknownst to us at times when we pray. And, uh, but my prayers reflect it. That's how I know it's there. My self-love often causes me to ask God for things that might benefit me at the expense of somebody else. Maybe I'm asking God for a promotion at work. Lord, I want that promotion. Please give it to me. When somebody else who has been at the company longer, has worked harder, and deserves it more, I'm asking God to step over them, because after all, they don't know you, Lord. I know you. I'm your child, you know? And I'm, I'm, I'm praying a prayer, not that asking God for a promotion is evil, but, you know, if God says no because he wants to give it to somebody else, are we okay with that? There are times when I ask God for things because of my self-centeredness, um, things that I'm not even aware of possibly that uh, won't enrich my walk with him or be good overall for my spiritual development. There's a lot of young Christians who have prayed that God would give them this guy or gal for their husband or wife, their head over heels uh, for this person. Or I want, they're the one, Lord. This is the one. That's my husband or that's my wife. Lord, please give them to me. And he doesn't. And they're mad initially. 
But as time goes on, he brings the one he has prepared for them from before the foundation of the world. And when God brings you the right spouse, how glorious. And then we're thanking God for unanswered prayers. We always thank him for answered prayers. How many times has God not answered a prayer because he knew it wouldn't be good for us? He has something better in mind. At the time, nobody's buried this person. But God shows us. I went through that with my wife. Uh, crazy about a gal before I met Cindy. Oh, she's the one. I wasn't a Christian, but I prayed. Oh, she's the one. You know, just was head over heels. And oh, wow, this is the one, although we weren't really that compatible. And finally, the relationship ended, and I was devastated and so on. And then a few months later, God brought Cindy to my life. And I realized, wow. Am I thankful God didn't give me the one I thought was the best for me? He knew who was best for me. That's why Jesus taught us to pray, not my will, but your will be done. You know what's best, Lord, right? Listen, God's power and intervention in our lives is always because of his love for us, which is constant, unconditional, and always acts and does for me, listen, what's best for my life, whether I understand it or not at the time. It's good to know that no matter how fickle or inconsistent my love for him is, it doesn't change the way he works in my life because, listen, it's his love for me that motivates everything he does in my life, not my love for him. Good heavens, if God dealt with us, in proportion to how much we loved him, uh, we wouldn't see God working too much at all. See, that's the thing. I want to bring this point out too, that God doesn't love me back or do for me in proportion to my love for him. In other words, if I only love him a little, he only loves me back a little. If I only serve him a little, he only does for me a little. I'm so thankful God's love isn't like that. That's not how he works in our lives. I don't care if you love the world 90% and God 10%. He loves you 100%. That's just how he is. His love is unconditional. It is infinite toward us and um, unconditional and infinite. And everything he gives me and does for me is through grace, which means getting what I don't deserve. See, the problem is we're so busy trying to earn God's love, trying to earn why he needs to help us or do for us. And the Bible teaches that everything God gives us is a gift of grace, which means getting what I don't deserve. In fact, if you try to give reasons why, to God why you do deserve his help in a given situation, eh, you just have taken yourself out of the equation. God will not do for you or help you if you think you deserve it. If you come to God with an entitlement mentality, you're on your own. If you come humble and broken, God, I deserve nothing from you. I don't ask you to help me because, you know, I love you so much. I'm asking you to help me because you're God, you're all loving, and, and all you do for me is a gift of your grace anyways. I deserve none of it. It all comes to us as an expression of his love. Guys, knowing the true character of God is one of the greatest needs in the body of Christ today, and I don't say that lightly. 
I say it because it's true. God's character has been dragged through the mud and he has, his character has been distorted over the years by those who are charlatans and crooks and hucksters and false teachers and false shepherds and so on. And they have so damaged people's concept of God in so many different areas, which they wouldn't have been able to, by the way, if people had just spent time with God themselves in his word, in his presence in prayer. They wouldn't know who he is, what he's like. But because they don't and they just, you know, go ahead and just soak in whatever their pastor or whatever some televangelist says on TV about God without checking. They're not Bereans. That's the problem today. When Paul was in Greece, he went to Thessalonica and they received his word with all readiness of mind. He goes down south to Berea and uh, Luke, writing the book of Acts, says those in Berea were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received what Paul had to say with an open heart, went home and checked it against the scriptures to make sure Paul was telling them the truth. I have said it before, I'll say it again, don't you ever take what any pastor or TV personality says to you about God or his word without checking it out for yourself in the word of God. Don't take what Phil Ballmeyer says. You go check it out for yourself in the word of God. I want you to do that. It's important that we do that, right? We have to know the character of our God if we're going to walk with him in truth and so on. Back to John 11, verse 4. When Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, guys, and we'll just touch on it this week and really develop it next week. This is why God allows sickness and adversity in our lives as his children. That we might be a witness through it. That Jesus may be made, that Jesus may be glorified, which means made desirable in the minds and hearts of those who are lost. Look, we live in a fallen world. A fallen world where tragedy, adversity, and disease are a reality of life. Think about this. If from the moment you got saved and became a child of God, if God supernaturally kept all of his children healthy and free from disease, heartache, or other tragedies that plague unbelievers, well, we wouldn't be able to relate to their suffering, comfort them in their affliction, or share with them how much God loves them and wants them to be a part of his family in heaven forever. Folks, this is the very definition of ministry. The very definition of ministry. That God allows us to suffer at times as his people so that we can better relate to a hurting world, and through it, listen, have an open door into the hearts of those who are more willing and open to what we have to say because we are going through or have gone through what they're going through and because they can relate to us. I mean, don't talk to me about, you know, uh, this or that or how much God loves me. I've got cancer. Well, you know what? I'm going through chemo right now. You are? You're a Christian? Yes. Well, how could God love you if he's alive? I know God loves me. Because I'm going through cancer doesn't mean God doesn't love me. Let me tell you why. Tell me that somebody who wasn't abused growing up sexually, 
how they don't have more of an open door into the heart of a young woman who was or is being sexually abused by someone in her family. I mean, we have common ground. Jesus is telling us, look, I'm sending you out into a hurting world to preach the good news to everybody. But if I kept you from all the heartache and trials and sicknesses that unbelievers that you're going to be ministering to are going through, they wouldn't relate to you. I mean, isn't that what Jesus did? He was a man acquainted with grief and sorrows. He was a man who understood adversity, who was betrayed by the closest friends, who was, uh, who was uh, spit upon when he tried to do good. It's because Jesus was one of us. Sure, the God-man unique from us, but one of us, a flesh and blood human being that we know he can relate to us. In fact, the Bible says he was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. He understands, the writers of the New Testament say, he understands what you're going through. Turn to 2 Corinthians 1. Again, folks, this is the very definition of ministry. And really, I love to turn to 2 Corinthians 1 because it actually states it. Starting with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Now, I'm going to tell you a little story that I didn't plan to, to say. Uh, bear with me. There is a young lady that we know. Uh, I believe her mom and dad are pastors. Excuse me. Her dad's a pastor in Calvary Movement, and her mom's you know, married to a pastor. And um, she, um, as I'm trying to recall the story exactly so I don't mess it up, uh, she, was, she lived in a rough part of town, Brooklyn, or uh, something like that. And on her way home from school one day, young girl, teenager, she was gang raped by a bunch of guys. Now, she was a Christian. A lot of people would say, how could a God of love allow one of his kids to be raped? Gang raped. She didn't feel that way. She didn't blame God. She didn't harbor any resentment toward God. She forgave the young men who had gangbangers who had raped her. Her sister, who was into the occult, saw what her sister, how she handled this, and her sister got saved. Several years later, the Lord laid it on her heart to apply to a ministry called Far-Reaching Ministries. That founder will be here in a couple weeks. to be a missionary. She was accepted and brought over to a place in Africa, and uh, it was this tribe that she wanted to minister to. Part of it was they had an initiation where there were three missionaries that were trying to be initiated into the tribe where they could be family. And they had to drink a bowl of blood 
urine, maggots, and some other things to see if they were worthy. The first two missionaries tried, and they just, they just puked. They couldn't deal it, do it. She prayed, Lord, please, I believe you want me to do this. Give me the grace. And she drank that down, and they accepted her. She came to find out that the women in that tribe were routinely raped, gang raped. When they heard that she had been gang raped, they accepted her. They knew she knew what they were going through. And she had a, has had a tremendous ministry. Would she have chosen that for herself if she had the choice? No, probably not. None of us would have. My point is that sometimes God puts us through very difficult experiences, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us and wants to use us in greater ways for his glory. With that in mind, I think John 11:4 becomes clearer. This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, and I'll paraphrase, that many are brought to Jesus through faith. In other words, that many would wind up coming to Jesus all through the experience that Lazarus had. And they did. They did. In fact, he was such a powerful witness, Pharisees and scribes plotted to kill him again. This guy couldn't win for losing, right? Uh, we'll study that. Now look, for those who are quote-unquote faith healers or who are in the Word of Faith movement, they scoff at and ridicule the notion that God would allow people to get sick to bring Him glory. Sickness, they will tell you, is from the devil, not from God. And sickness is never for the glory of God, only health and healing. That's not entirely true. Turn to Exodus 4. Exodus 4. You remember how that God told Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. And Moses said, Lord, I stutter. I, I can't talk well. Right? Remember that? Verse 11, so the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? This is an interesting and important statement by God. And one that we need to understand. First of all, is God actually saying he makes some people with handicaps at birth? And if so, what kind of a God is this we're talking about? That's cruel. That's vicious. How can you Christians say your God is a good and loving God when he would allow people, that when he would cause people to be handicapped? Well, first of all, yes, that's exactly what God is saying. I don't see how you get around it. Does God really make people handicapped? Well, that's what he's saying, Right? And he makes people, some people, handy, handicapped for his glory. You remember when we studied John chapter 9, the chapter began by saying as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. 
And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. God caused him to be born blind because it was going to bring God glory. I know people would say, but isn't that cruel? How can God be a good and loving God when he creates handicapped people? Well, I think to say that God creates handicapped people is probably the wrong idea. He allows some people to be born handicapped. He knows the genetics are not there. Who knows how many times in the womb he corrects genetics of some people. Supernaturally, so that they aren't born handicapped. Others he doesn't. I think it's probably a wrong idea to say he creates actively handicapped people. He allows some people to be born handicapped. Make no mistake about this, sin created handicaps, sickness, and death. Not God. This is not the world God wanted for us. He made a paradise for man to live in place called the Garden of Eden, a place where there was never supposed to be any sickness and especially death, a place where we would live a perfect life. But of course, man's own rebellion ended that. When Adam ate the forbidden fruit, the human race fell and, brought, and sin brought into this world death, deformity, disease, and handicaps. But since this world is the world we have brought upon ourselves, God is not against using the consequences of our own sin to glorify himself so that people would know he is real and that he does love them and wants to save them. Years ago, we went to a place called Lamb's Farm with the kids when they were little. You know what the best part of that place was? They had all kinds of Down's syndrome children living and working there. That was the greatest day. Those kids were so loving, so helpful. And I discovered over the course of life talking to Down syndrome people, many of them are saved. I believe in their handicap, God uses it to bring them to Jesus. They remain like children in their thinking. And children are the most open to God of anyone. God doesn't love them. Why would he let them be born that way? God loves them so much, he let them be born that way because so many of them wind up getting saved and uh, a glorious eternity is ahead of them. I reject out of hand, the word of faith teaching that God doesn't allow sick, uh, God doesn't allow people to get sick for His glory, or that when God's children do get sick, that it is His will to always heal them in every circumstance, every single time. I reject that. I mean, look, Paul the apostle, God never did heal. Paul was probably the greatest Christian who ever lived. He had some kind of a debilitating infirmity that he. Some, some chronic thing that he dealt with all the time. Some people think it was his eyes. He couldn't see very well. But God never did heal him, did he? 
even though Paul asked God to heal him three times. Turn to 2 Corinthians 12. The reason God didn't heal Paul was because his infirmity made him a better believer, a stronger and more humble servant. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7. Paul said, lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. God revealed to Paul so much he wrote half the New Testament. Paul said, I could have got puffed up with pride. And God kept me humble. Uh, you know, he, he, he allowed a thorn for the flesh to be given to me. A messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted with pride above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches and needs and persecutions in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Guys, sickness and adversity have a way of strengthening our faith. As Jesus himself said in verse 15, when they got there and Lazarus was dead, he said, I am glad for your sakes I didn't get here before he died, that you may believe. I know some people are sitting there thinking, okay, okay, but why play games with his disciples? Why didn't Jesus just tell them plainly, look, Lazarus is going to die, and I'm going to go and raise him from the dead? Because that's not, how, that's not God's way of building faith in our hearts. He never lets us in on all the details he's up to, right? He just says what? Follow me, trust me. Walk by faith and not by sight. There's a reason why God does, and I would like for him to submit to me in duplicate. Five minutes after I was born again, I would love to have had him submit to me a detailed list of all he had planned for my life. Now, if I would have read at the beginning, Phil, you just knew that you saved five minutes. Here's what my plan is. You're going to be a pastor. You're going to be up in front of people talking and teaching. I would have ran out of the room screaming into the night. Because with my fear of public speaking, there is no way God's going to... Uh, there's no way I can do that. So God doesn't do that. He just lets his plan unfold gently as time goes on. Until we're too far and we can't back out. You know... He knows I wouldn't have signed up for this if he had told me up front. But now I've been in it long enough where a guy goes, no, you can't really run. You're in it too far. Now, here's the deal. You're going to be a pastor. Oh, no. Yes. That kind of thing, right? All right, look, we, we just bring this to a close. I want you to note something. There's a lot of things in these verses that I have seen. We'll study some of them next week also. But I want you to note something. It seems from the story that the, the day the messengers arrived for, from Mary and Martha, the, the, the day that the messengers came to Jesus from Mary and Martha telling the Lord their brother Lazarus was sick, 
on that very day Lazarus died. And from the story we realize Jesus knew he had died. Jesus knew he had died. And yet he sent the message back to the sisters, excuse me, he sent the messenger back to the sisters with the message, verse 4, this sickness won't result in the death of Lazarus. Now it took the messenger two days to get back to the girls with what he thought was great news. Two days to get back to the girls with the news that Jesus had promised this sickness wouldn't take Lazarus' life, only to arrive and find out that Lazarus had died two days ago on the very day Jesus promised that Lazarus' sickness wouldn't be fatal. It's hard for me to imagine what Mary and Martha must have thought. And I imagine the messenger was so excited with this good news that he must have just burst into, our, into their house, said something like, hey guys, good news! I just came from Jesus. He said, Lazarus is going to be fine. This sickness is not going to take his life. And then the sisters had to inform this man, well, actually our brother passed away two days earlier. I mean, can you imagine? I'm not sure I can even get my mind around how they must have felt, how this news must have impacted Mary and Martha. Not only did Jesus delay his coming, allowing Lazarus to die, he then seems to have misled the messenger and ultimately the sisters by telling them, this isn't going to result in Lazarus' death, only to see Lazarus die. Think about that. How could, how could they ever trust anything Jesus promised ever again going forward? How they must have at that moment damaged their understanding of him, their relationship with him. Their trust in him. I mean, how would it, would it have shaken your faith? Think about it. If this was your situation, how would it have shaken your confidence in the promises of God going forward if he had promised that your sick loved one was going to be okay? This sickness would not result in their death, only to watch them pass away. I bring that up because years ago, I was listening, listening to Christian radio, and uh, Elizabeth Elliot was on. Now, Elizabeth Elliot, she's with the Lord now, but at one time she had been married to a man named Jim Elliot. And Jim, along with four other men, became missionaries and went to Ecuador to minister to the Aka Indians. In the course of ministering to these people, they were killed by them. She remarried, you know, she went to Ecuador and worked among them for years, loved them so much the whole tribe got saved, but she went on to remarry. One day her new husband became very sick, and she of course was praying for his healing. And she's, I'm, 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 doing, I'm, I'm actually painting somebody's house, and, and I'm, I'm caught, I had to stop and listen, I got so caught up in the story. And she said, as I was praying for God to heal my husband, all kinds of scriptures were popping into my head about God's healing and, and just have faith and, and, and you know, God's going to take care of it. And she was convinced God was telling her her husband was going to be okay, was not going to die. 
only a few weeks later, he did die. Now, Elizabeth Elliot was such a godly woman and so strong in her faith, she never questioned God. She never at one time said, God, you lied to me. She examined herself. And she realized, and she said it. It wasn't God speak to me, speaking to me. It was the imagination of my own heart. It was wishful thinking. And because I knew the word, all these scriptures of hope were popping into my head. And I was convinced God was speaking. But looking back, I realized I was constructing a Frankenstein doctrine where I was piecing all these scriptures together and claiming that they had the life of God in them. They were living and powerful. And God was talking. And it wasn't God. It was my own heart, wishful thinking. And she said, you have to be careful. Be careful that when you seek God for something, you really have in your heart, Lord, whatever you decide is okay. Not my will, but thy will. Because if you're so wishing that something's going to happen, you may imagine God is telling you it's going to be the way you want. And if it doesn't happen the way you believe God is telling you it's going to happen, your faith might not be as strong as Elizabeth Elliot's was. And many aren't. Their faith isn't. They, they turn against God. They, they believe God has lied to them. Let me just, something slightly different. So often the problem isn't that God has failed to do for us what he has promised. The problem is we have misinterpreted what God has promised. And that misconception has now caused our faith to be damaged. Do you understand that? We read again. So often the problem isn't that God has failed to do for us what he has promised. The problem is we have misinterpreted what God has promised. And that misconception has now caused our faith to be damaged. And again, there are many in the Word of Faith movement who have been told by TV preachers or pastors that God has promised to prosper their businesses. That God has promised to give them a beautiful new luxury home or one or more luxury automobiles if they would send in to the televangelist ministry their seed faith offering, as they call it. You give the televangelist money, and it's like seed planted in the ground. It allows God to bring forth this incredible promise in your life. And they always add, and the more you give, the larger your hundredfold return will be. And so many people have sent these charlatans their life savings, their whole life savings. And they have seen no return on their investment, which has caused many to lose faith in God and in the promises of God in his word. The only problem was God never made them that promise. Their understanding of the word was faulty. They were lied to. And because they weren't Bereans and bought into this crook's lies, crook masquerading as a man or woman of God, who simply ripped them off, they're devastated. Their faith is damaged. Look, guys, misinformation, lies, 
is different from misinterpretation. Another thing we have to be careful of. Sure, many are being lied to, but misinformation is not the same as misinterpretation. When Jesus promised Mary and Martha that this sickness is not unto death, he didn't mean that Lazarus wasn't going to die. What he meant was his death wouldn't be the ultimate or final outcome. Jesus was going to intervene and raise Lazarus from the dead. What if God spoke to you about one of your loved ones or some Christian somewhere and said, your loved one is not going to die? And then they did die. Do you think you'd be prone to say, oh, I get it. They're not going to die ultimately. Because he will raise them from the dead someday. Isn't that where the story goes? In chapter 11? I have learned over the years that sometimes we can misinterpret what God promises us in his word or as he speaks to our hearts in a given situation. When that happens, we must never question God's word. But instead, we must question our understanding of what God said that maybe we misunderstood. Years ago, and I'll close with this, years ago, we had a woman coming to the church whose name was Jerry. Now, Jerry had a healthy son, another healthy daughter, but her third pregnancy resulted in twin boys. And they were not healthy. They had some kind of a genetic defect where they couldn't walk. Um, she had to really take care of She was a good mom. She really doted over those boys. And she had come from a word of faith background. And of course, she got all her word of faith friends together, and they prayed that the boys would be healed. And she said God gave her a vision of her son standing upright, wearing tuxedos. And it was a wedding that they were at. And she believed what God was saying was by the time their sister is married, God is going to heal these boys. They're going to be at the wedding with tuxedos on, standing on their own power. She really believed that for years. Then the daughter got married, and the boys weren't healed. Her faith was really shaken. She still came to our church, but she was really hurting. And one day the Lord spoke to Cindy and said to her, Jerry has misinterpreted what I meant. Those boys are going to be standing wearing tuxedos at a wedding, the wedding feast of the Lamb. Because when we are raptured, we're all going to be healed. All of us of everything as believers. And I believe those boys were believers. I believe that they accepted, because I knew them when they were older. I believe that they were believers and we're going to see them in the kingdom. Well, whether we'll be wearing tuxedos at the marriage supper of the Lamb, I think he was just trying to get a point across. Okay? <laughs> well, when Cindy told Jerry this, she got very upset and left the church. She said, I need, be, I need to be around people who will help to build my faith, not tear it down. 
How about you be around Christians who love you enough to tell you the truth? And maybe you haven't got it all figured out. Maybe you misunderstood something God said. It's okay. We all do it. Rather than holding on to something God has really not told you, a vision that maybe you've misinterpreted, and now is damaging your walk with him because God has not come through for you, his word has failed. Guys, you have to read the word carefully and make sure God has given you a practical promise and not a spiritual spiritual one, that he is promising you earthly blessings and not spiritual treasures in heaven. The New Testament is filled with promises that are connected to spiritual riches in heaven. Sometimes people take those and apply them physically, practically, and, and believe God has promised them earthly wealth. Now, I don't know how they get there because Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on the earth where moth, rust, destroy, thieves break in and steal, but rather lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, where thieves cannot break through and steal. For where, where your treasure is, there you what? Your heart will be also, my treasures on earth, that's what my heart's going to That's what my heart on earth. What's my heart in heaven with him? And everything I do on earth is for his glory. And if he allows me to go through sickness, it's for his glory. Everything God did in your life before you got saved was to bring it to Jesus. Everything he's doing in your life now is to help you be used by him to bring others to Jesus. It's pretty simple if we will accept it. Amen. Next week, I'd like to explore a little further the idea that if God is really a God of love, why do bad things happen to good people? We'll look at that next time. Father, we thank you for your word and all the spiritual insights and nuggets you have placed in your word for our learning. Give us grace, Lord, to learn these things, that we would draw close to you, understand you better. And Lord, not misinterpret things you tell us, but walk in the Spirit. With the goal in mind, I am here for one purpose, and that is to bring my Lord glory. Work in our hearts that that would be our passion, and that would be our purpose. Lord, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.